Eve, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Um, I'd like to start by um, talking to you about artificial intelligence. You will hear it all the time mentioned on the news and in various different articles. Um, what is it? What is AI? It's such interesting jargon, isn't it? And I, I think everybody has a very different understanding of what it is. Um, there are lots of subsets of it. But I, I think in general, AI is any attempt to copy human intelligence artificially. And generally that has meant through zeros and ones and in the digital world. But of course, we've always been copying intelligence through machines and other kinds of ciphers over the years. So the general enterprise isn't new, but the particular developments we've had uh, owing to the speed of technology these days makes AI feel very, very sci-fi, very, very futuristic uh, and very now. And um, when we read, I mean, I, I've read loads of articles on it, um, which seem to tell me that I ought to be utterly terrified <laughs> that the future is robot um, and it's going to be it's going to affect everything. Um, are you frightened of the future with AI in it? I'm frightened, but in that sort of free kind of excited way um, that you get when you go to a kind of scary movie that, you know, will resolve. Um, because I think this is a scary movie that could resolve. I, th I think the problem is we've all been brought up on sci-fi. You know, we've watched a lot of movies and a lot of miniseries and we sort of binge watch with our ice cream. And we kind of love the thrill of it and, and the sort of feeling of danger because it's entirely safe sitting on your sofa eating your popcorn. And I think what's a bit terrifying about this for people is all of a sudden that stuff has kind of come into your pocket through things like ChatGPT. Yeah. And it feels a lot more real than it ever has before. Mm -hmm. um, and because we're used to it being entertainment, suddenly it doesn't feel like entertainment anymore. So I think there's quite a lot of processing going on to try and figure out, well, normally, you know, the goodies win. You know, what, what's happening? Will that be the case? Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, we're just freaking ourselves out because we've seen so many potential future scenarios through all these lovely sci-fi plots. But, um, you know, they also warn us about how this could go mm -hmm. if we don't make the right choices now. And um, I mean, I love the idea of, um, in a way, we've all always had machines that do what humans can do. Um, immediately you said that, I went, oh, yeah, we like a washing machine, don't we? You know, that's, a, that's a machine that we like what, that can do yeah. what humans can do. Um, yeah. But in a way, AI takes us into a different kind of realm. Um, what, does that, what do machines and their ability to do what humans can do tell us about who humans are? Um, there's in your book when you're talking about robot souls, I think you're touching on this area of actually what what is human, and how does AI actually intersect with what is really human? It's such a good question because I, I think that's where we've slightly lost the plot on this. Because um, just to do a bit of sort of ancient history, um, we're talking about machines there, and we we have had a noble tradition of of using machines to replicate human capabilities, whether whether it's about just tools to extend our capabilities or whether it is actually machinery by way of, of prosthetics or machines that just make our lives easier, like the washing machine. Um, we're kind of used to copying the physical ways that we operate in a variety of ways, but we have stopped short of copying our bodies exactly because of all of our red lines about ethics and particularly what we've learned from that all going really badly wrong through eugenics. So uh, again, what's interesting is because it's too difficult ethically to copy bodies, um, even though we have a fair go at that through 
you know, various means therapeutically uh, in trying to figure out how we can use stem cells and all kinds of stuff uh, and gene therapies. Um, it, instead, we've kind of migrated the effort to copying brains, copying minds, copying intelligence, partly because, you know, through the Enlightenment, we have become highly rational. And that seems to be the thing we prize uh, over and above our bodies, really. And I mean, you've written a lot about this, but it's interesting being situated in a very incarnational faith where God chose a human body. It, it's quite non-trivial that the body is, is part of our being made in the image of um, and sanctified by God's choices in that regard. Um, but the, uh, the emphasis in AI has been on copying thought, not copying physicality. And in some ways that's coming round full circle because AI has gone off on this tangent, just sort of copying minds and processing in that way. Meanwhile, robotics in a very safe way that has not been organic has been copying bodies mechanically. And of course it's learning as we have all physically learned that you learn faster with a body than you do with a disembodied mind. So now that they are putting AI technology into robots, they're learning all kinds of crazy things because that's how we learn when we were children. The, the combination of body and mind um, accelerates learning. So just to um, move from that into your basic question about what makes us human and, and what's different, um, what I'm really intrigued by, which is why I wrote this book, is in copying minds, we're just doing a really rubbish job of it because it's very hard to copy a mind. We don't really understand our minds. Um, so what we've done is we've sort of taken the obvious bits that seem to be kind of no-brainers and bunged those into technology. And we're suddenly realising that that possibly wasn't very wise. So I can say more about that, but I'll pause there in case you want to delve into any of that before I talk about junk code and what we might be missing. <laughs> well, I, what, the thing I do want to um, kind of chip in is where does emotion sit with all of this? Because... In a way, what we're talking about is the replication of logical thought processes. And um, I certainly know of myself that I like to think I'm enormously logical, but actually emotion does drive quite a lot of my thought processes. Um, empathy, um, past experience, all of those kinds of things do shape how we think about things. Um, is there any room in AI for emotion? Absolutely. And I think that's, again, one of these really interesting features of the kind of history of this, because it, it was Thomas Hobbes who in Leviathan established this idea of kind of thought as a process, a train of thought and computation, which is at the, the heart of our ability to then copy that in a kind of process way um, digitally. Um, and of course, in those days, the philosophers were very much focused on rational unemotional thought and the emotions weren't considered to be part of thought processes they were some sort of soppy random kind of malfunction probably that were particularly problematic in women and young people but uh, if you're a proper philosophical grown-up you didn't suffer from any of that nonsense and of course over the years we have appreciated that the role of emotions in rational decision making is is very crucial and is often the safeguard that stops us making bad decisions. So I think in terms of copying vanilla thought processes these days, we would be trying to factor emotions into that. But of course, if you think about um, the kind of hubris of um, uh, making things in your own image, 
Um, I suspect if you look at the prevailing personality types, um, gender proclivities of the vast majority of people who are in the heart of the coding environment, emotions hasn't been something that has been particularly treasured or precious or encouraged in that kind of environment because it is very, very highly rational and logical. Um, and of course, if you're trying to reduce everything to ones and zeros, emotions seem to not really fit that kind of way of thinking. So in my analysis of what's missing, even though we're trying now with care bots to kind of retrofit fake emotions so that we like care bots more, buy more of them, I suppose, um, I think we've forgotten why we have emotions. Um, and again, for me, they're absolutely core to our own design in terms of stopping us um, kind of going rogue in the way that everyone is worried about the control problem and the alignment of AI with human values. Well, as soon as you give your species free will, you, you have that problem, which is how on earth are you going to keep this wayward creation on track? And emotions is the first thing you design back in as a protection because emotion naturally makes you careful of other people, bothered about other people, reaching out to other people and being fundamentally interpersonal relational in a way that certainly we understand from a Trinitarian point of view. And, and that keeps you through safety in numbers together as a species and it keeps you nurturing and protecting species through thick or thin, which again is really important for your species flourishing and survival. So emotions, apart from just being kind of really normal thing that we all feel, um, you know, even if it is rather complex to try and figure out how you would code it into a robot, is just such a core part of our operating system. It seems bizarre that you could have some artificial intelligence without it. And the other thing you said that kind of tantalised me and I wanted to ask you more about was um, the thing that makes us human is being created in the image of God. Could we create a robot in the image of God? Well, yes, we could. And I mean, this gets back to your sort of take on the parables and whether you think the parables were designed to sort of conceal or reveal. And I play around in the book with this idea of junk code because that's a rather similar concept. They, they say that junk code is either code that's in a kind of string of code and you're not quite sure why it's there but it might be sort of secret source so you better not take it out just in case it crashes the whole thing or junk code is sometimes put in by coders to obfuscate so it's harder for you to copy the secret source um, so it ends up being sort of camouflage um, so whether you think um, junk code is one or the other the thing that's fascinating about humans is that we, we don't really know very much about our own design, actually. Um, particularly now, we're, we're hell-bent on just taking out the really kind of obvious bits and, and coding them in and ignoring everything else. Because it's when you start taking those rather more mysterious bits like emotions and everything else more seriously, you start realising that they are probably the hallmarks of soul. So if we're trying to get back to the black box of our own design, they are probably more at the heart of it than our ability to, you know, play chess and solve equations. Um, so that's the thing I explore in my book, really, is trying to say, well, all that forgotten stuff, all that junk code, all that stuff you've left on the floor because it's too complicated and disputed. That's the that's the stuff. You know, that's why we're here and that's why we're special. Um, and when you look at it in the round, you can see why it's there, because it is very much part of this um designed to help us flourish uh, in creation and with each other and if those things aren't there then the species is in serious trouble and therefore the robots will be in serious trouble 
And, um, and that kind of touches kind of we've been kind of working our way around the question of what a soul is. So I feel we're kind of we were ready now to ask that question, which I, I ask um, knowing fully how tricky the question is. So um, <laughs> allow me to bowl it to you and go. So, Eve, tell me what a soul is. Well, let me tell you a bit about what people think the soul is. Yeah. Um, and this very much depends on your worldview. So if you have a secular worldview and you don't particularly believe in a, a kind of external creator like a god or something, um, you tend to conflate the soul um, with consciousness. And consciousness is something that seems to be not solely human, but very particularly human. And the, the, the sort of best analysis I've seen of that kind of view is probably... Um, Nagel's work on uh, what is it like to be a bat and he says you know we don't really know what the inner life of a bat is but there's probably such a thing as batness they probably feel battish um, and given that they have that sense of self that seems to be consciousness um, and that's probably why amongst the animal kingdom we tend to award animals rights because we think they're conscious in some way um, and we relate to them rather differently than we do to a table or a a chair or something um but but we can't really get much further than that because my consciousness is probably not your consciousness um and while it will have some family similarities my own sense of self is my own sense of self so it's fairly impenetrable um so that that's an interesting view because on that view of course a robot could have a soul because if a robot was advanced enough to have a sense of self um, which again, some of the more elaborate ones are already certainly claiming. Um, then if you've got batness, then you could have robotness. And it wouldn't be like being Eve or being Paula, but it, it would be a sense of self. Um, so, so there's that, which is if soul is actually uh, a word for consciousness um, and it's essentially about processing and a lived experience, then anything that can articulate that can have it. And that gets quite tricky because, uh, again, in the secular world, where an awful lot of this sort of AI design is coming from, there is a view that consciousness sort of emerged when we became complex, when our brains got a bit complex. They needed a kind of ability to kind of hover above themselves in order to help with the processing. Uh, and also when we got upright and more physical and um, you know mo more mobile, we needed to suck in the data we can get through consciousness, through our senses to help us flourish as a, as a creation. Um, and therefore it's a kind of processing thing, consciousness, and therefore this, this, this version of soul um, being able to make meaning. Um, so when people talk about spirituality in the secular sense, that's often what they're meaning, that they're talking about meaning making and that would be a, a sort of processing. So. If you don't have a sense of, of God or that we're special or anything, then of course, over time, as AI gets more complex, it will have to evolve consciousness as a way of coping with its own processing and therefore will probably be able to meaning make and claim robotness. Um, and if you are in that worldview where you think the only thing that's going on here is evolution and we're just all meat that's kind of on a journey to perfection, then of course we should just hand over to the robots because if they are going to be our ultimate perfection, then who are we to stand in their way? Uh, and we should rejoice and we should get cracking on making the AI take over as quickly as possible um, so that we just fade out, go off to the golf course for a bit and then then push off. Um, so that that's slightly worrying to me. And um, 
the reason I wrote this book actually is because I was sat on a beach in North Berwick up in Scotland with my kids pottering around and they were sort of paddling and building sandcastles and digging holes as kids have done for centuries and I could look behind me to an Iron Age fort and think you know there have been children here for thousands of years pottering around splashing and digging holes and building sandcastles and then I felt really sad because in that worldview where this is entirely a teleology of perfection maybe there won't be children here in a thousand years time because if this is about the perfection of our design well robots don't have childhoods because they don't need them and it was that that made me take quite seriously this idea of what a soul might be particularly if you happen to have a Christian faith because if you think the soul is a gift from God then maybe God will decide to bestow those on robots um but we have to take quite seriously the fact that God has bestowed them on us. And even though it's a bit speciesist to say, you know, human exceptionalism, we're in charge, hooray for us, you know, Garden of Eden and all of that. You know, if we are uniquely made in the image of God, then probably we do have a role and some kind of right to be being better stewards, clearly, than we are. But but to, to be orchestrators of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe AI shouldn't be taking over from us unless we can absolutely make it in the image of God. And that would be about a journey of discovery about our own design so that we're not doing that badly. No, no and it's, it's, it just bowls so many fascinating questions, doesn't it? And uh, you know, from my perspective, we're thinking of um, the soul more in the Bible. What the, w- the way in which it kind of seems to settle is the soul being the life force, the thing that kind of gives you um, the life. Um, and it then becomes a fascinating question. Um, it, can a robot have that kind of life? Um, and uh, yeah, it's the bit in Ezekiel yeah. where the where the bones, there's the breath yeah. is breathed into the bones, and That's I use right. that in the book because it's such a brilliant encapsulation of that idea that mm. God has to breathe life into us for us to have life. And of course, in that worldview, nothing manufactured could ever have a soul because yeah. it's man-made, and the only thing that could ever have a soul is God-made, um, mm. and that would just be quite clear in terms of categories. Mm. Um, I, I think the issue is that um, at the moment, it isn't religions running the world. It's a load of corporations that have got this stuff pretty much behind closed doors. And at the moment, we're struggling to try and figure out what our kind of policy responses should be to this and what our regulatory responses should be to this. And of course, we can't really be legislating for souls in the way that we might like to as religious people. All we can do is try and figure out, well, where is the secular narrative on this? And where actually do we need to start muscling in and saying, well, I'm I'm not sure this is entire. Um, Because when you start looking at things like the Human Rights Act as a basic protection, you start suddenly panicking about how do you define a human? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, with our shared Judeo-Christian heritage, a lot of our law is based on that worldview, even if it's not articulated. Um, And actually, we probably need to start articulating some of that stuff because it is the ultimate protections behind the red lines to do with cloning and eugenics and all these kinds of things um and if you move away from that to a more utilitarian frame which of course is what is generally happening in public policy and in capitalism and in uh, a lot of public law um then the fundamental idea of the the human dignity of every single person regardless of merit or capabilities or any of that kind of stuff uh, is under attack i think Mm. in a way that ai throws sharply into relief because ai is trying to create perfection. So uh, since you touched on government policy, I think it's a really interesting one. So imagine we enter a world in which Eve has a magic wand and can wave it and say, let it be so. Um, what, what would that look like in terms of government policy? 
if you were to kind of to say what do we need now to do in terms of government to begin to regulate um, AI what what things do we think need to think about well there's a, a variety of of maneuvers on this some of which are about kind of mitigations rather than actions a one mitigation is about a professional body for all those working in AI because if you think about the medical profession and the legal profession and other professions even if they're working for you know, capitalist organisations who are telling them to do things. There are some red lines that they have professionally, um, some lines they won't cross because they would otherwise be struck off. Um, and they have to um, sign up to a code of behaviour and ethics through their professional body, which they're not at liberty to lay aside. We don't have anything like that in AI. Um, and it feels to me that we do need to make a head start on that. Um, the government have just produced an interim report about regulation, and it's quite interesting to compare it to what's happening uh, com compared to the European legislation that is being drafted and, and coming out shortly. Um, because in Europe, um, the UN has made a distinction between what they call deterministic robots and cognitive robots, and that crops up in the European protocols. So deterministic robots are, are essentially the kind of mechanized things that you would be familiar with and, and they they are, are kind of programmed and they're sort of more black boxy they don't have much leeway they're they're as good as their programming so if you have biased algorithms if you have incomplete uh, protocols then they will fail and, and do bad things but um, ultimately they're, they're, they're kind of controllable in that way uh, if you can get the protocols right and the protections right um, and there's a, a kind of limit to their parameters in terms of coding. Cognitive robots are the robots where the AI is designed to create self-teaching. Um, and this is partly for, for very good reasons. If you're going to bung a robot on the moon, you need it to be able to heal itself if, if it gets hit by a meteor or something. Um, so you need it to be able to problem solve without um, intervention from a programmer. So increasingly, uh, with deep learning um, and machine learning and all the kind of neural network stuff. Uh, sorry, there's a lot of jargon in this field. My book has about 20 pages of glossary because it's a bit alarming. But uh, it's it, 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 like all jargon, it's just designed to frighten you off. So please don't be frightened off. Um, but all this kind of spooky booky stuff, which is about trying to copy the intricacies of how we process, um, is now designed to give you basic parameters and the ability to reprogram yourself at will as a robot. Um, if you feel that you could better meet your objectives in so doing. Now, those cognitive robots have, have something that looks a wee bit like free will, um, and therefore they are not as containable as deterministic robots. So in regulation elsewhere, there is a distinction between these two, because cognitive robots could potentially be much more dangerous. The UK, because it is very keen on courting industry and innovation, has really come out with a lot of regulation, which is really about the deterministic robots, which aren't really, I mean, they are a problem because if you've got biased algorithms and, you know, incomplete um, uh, instructions about what, what good outcomes look like, then you're going to make mistakes, particularly if you put them in, in charge of, of any kind of triage or, or whatever. But in terms of the sort of running amok worry that we've all learned about from sci-fi, it's actually the cognitive robots that are more of a problem. And particularly if you factor in that it's those ones that could develop consciousness, sense yourself, you know, a feeling of harm, all those kinds of things. So I suppose in terms of regulation, I would absolutely rule out autonomous weaponry. Um, 
I, I don't mind if it is controlled. I mean, I mind full stop, but I don't mind if it is controlled by a person, but it should never be wholly autonomous because it should be a human right to kill another human. That must be a human situation that cannot be delegated to a machine uh, without any human um, controls in there. And with the whole really rather difficult area of sex bots, um, again, I'm sure we have a lot of kind of mechanical toys out there already that would be a bit like the deterministic robots. And it's not exactly as though I approve of those. But again, there should be a global ban on any attempt to put brain technology into one of those things, um, because there could be no concept of consent, you know, and that's about what human behavior we're wanting to encourage and discourage. So. I think there are some absolute red lines because of what we know and what we don't know about the capacities of some of these AIs. And particularly if you're talking about cognitive robots, it's a bit like having a child. I mean, you have to hope that you've given them the right values so they'll make the right decisions. And when they come home deciding that they're going to, you know, become an anarchist, you have to sort of hope that they'll come round. Um, and it's a bit like that with these cognitive robots that if we haven't really, really spent the time getting their basic functionality right then then who knows what they could go off and do if we've got that wrong so it feels that there does need to be particular um scrutiny around these more advanced ais and that's why my book is arguing for going through all of the kind of junk code things we have discounted to see why they're acting as risk mitigators in our own design and what we can learn from that in terms of getting some of the basics right in the cognitive robots in in order to make sure that they're behaving in a healthy fashion. Now, the bit there that really, again, grabbed my interest was the cognitive robots who know what they need in order to heal. Yeah. And it just made, sent me off probably on a tangent, but I, I was fascinated by it. Um, could we learn anything from cognitive robots about learning what we need in order to heal? Well, it's so interesting because one of the things that really set me off on, on this journey was watching um, a little robot um, that had been created. I, I talked about robots on the moon. This was one of those experiments to try and figure out how could you build a robot that would be able to physically heal itself, um, you know, if it was damaged on the moon. And so um, it was Hod Lipson's lab in Colombia, and they'd created a sort of four-fingered robot-y thing about the size of your hand. Um, a bit like Thing in the Adams family. And they hadn't, they'd given it neural networks and deep learning technologies and all that stuff, but they hadn't given it very many instructions or programming. They basically said, you need to go over there from one side of the pen to the other. Um, and so they, they trained the videos on it. They were all standing around watching and this thing kind of struggled about a bit and it took about three or four days, but it figured out how to kind of manipulate these fingery, leggy things, and it figured out how to get up, and it ultimately figured out how to go to the other side of the pen and fulfilled its mission. Um, so because of why they were doing this, they pulled it back, pulled off a leg, um, and saw whether it could do it with three legs. And of course, it took it maybe two days or something, but it, it, it sort of stumbled around until it got used to having three and not four legs, and then figured out how to cross the pen. So they were then intrigued about how it had self-taught. You know, how, how did it figure out how to do this? Because we don't really know very much about how kids learn how to walk. Um, and it's one of the things that, of course, they're very interested in, in, in looking at robotics. Um, so they had an analysis done of all of the kind of neural nets to try and understand what it was 
what access, what data is it accessing, what was it doing? And they discovered this quite spooky thing that really struck me, which is that um, it had tasked rather than neural nets with reading their facial expressions. And um, of course, as a human, you sit there and you think, hmm, that's a bit odd. But then you think, well, well, of course, we, we already know that on some level because that's how we learn how to walk when you were little. Um, you got a lot of reinforcement from the adults watching you. They were going, oh, don't go there, oh, watch a war. And they were doing a whole load of stuff physically with their expressions and their body language that gave you data about the trial and error of learning how to walk. And of course, this thing had figured that out. Um, so, and it takes us a while to figure out what it's figuring out. So I think there are all kinds of ways in which um, AI might teach us back things about how we learn that we hadn't quite understood. Um, and that might also help us understand a bit more in that context, that's about coping with a, a change. Um, and in that case, uh, I doubt the AI was feeling the pain of having a leg ripped off. So it would be very different for a human learning about healing in that environment. But, but certainly at that level, in terms of problem solving, we've got a lot to learn. In terms of healing more generally, um, I guess one of the reasons I'm optimistic about AI, if we can get this right, is that one of the problems with human sin and human error is we're not great at being very wise. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons for that, but some of it is we just don't often know enough. Um, and one of the things that might be amazing about AI is it could have the capacity to know a lot more than we could ever know. And it may be that it could therefore be more wise um, so again, in terms of healing, there may be some wisdom in there that we are not able to access because we don't have that kind of overview, um, which again sounds a bit spooky and godlike, but um, it is about the capacity to sort of um, access community wisdom in a way that we currently do through storytelling and wise elders and faith traditions and all those kinds of things. But, um, but AI might be able to help us with that too. One of the things um, that um, a lot of us will have encountered, much as we might like a little handy thing that's a robot, most of us aren't going to get one in the near future, are we? Um, but we all have access to Jack, chat GBT, um, GPT, um, which I, has been going around the internet in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I'd just like to talk about that a little bit now. Um, can you just begin by telling us what it is for people who haven't had the joy of um, going and finding it? And then we'll have a think about what it might say to us about writing and things. Ah, well, a bit of homework from this session for all of you is to have a go at it. So ChatGPT is what they call a large language model. Um, and it is an AI. It's not actually as terrifying an AI as possibly that walking hand is actually, um, because it is a bit more black boxy. It's a bit more deterministic um, than cognitive um, because the way it operates is it recognizes patterns um, and it has been fed a huge amount of data. Um, actually, from not that many institutions, I think about 50% of its training data is only from about nine global institutions. So you know, there is a sort of garbage in, garbage out concern about it more generally. But ChatGPT is designed to be your sort of ultimate intern. It'll write anything for you. It'll help you with your coding. It'll do all kinds of clever things. Um, and it's been released, not just so that we can, you know, get cheat sheets for sermons and things, but also so we will train it. Um, so actually, given that we're all in this game and we're all trying to make sure that AI that we're surrounded by 
is better rather than worse, the more we can badger ChatGPT by asking it to tell us about the Trinity and asking it fascinating, difficult questions, the more it will have to kind of get on top of all that stuff. So I would encourage you to absolutely get cracking on asking ChatGPT to do things for you. Um, it is interesting. It's a, it's a bit like a sort of, uh, as I mentioned, the, an intern. And I don't know how many of you will have had one at work. It's often your, a favour you're doing for your boss, isn't it? And you have an intern and they're hanging around and they're frightfully keen. Um, but quite often they're just not quite with it, are they? And you have to kind of spend all night correcting their work so you don't really want to upset them and demotivate them, but, you know, they're really not very good. And um, so I asked ChatGPT to write a biography of me so I could check it out. And uh, its training data finished in, like, 2019 or something. Um, so I put in, please write a biography of Dr. Eve Poole OBE. And, of course, I hadn't got my OBE in its training data. Um, so it just made up this terrific story about how totally fabulous I was and, you know, world peace in the UN. And you know, it, was, it was really exciting, but, of course, in, entirely a fantasy. But in the same sort of way that an intern would be trying not to be caught out and looking rubbish, would be try, trying to please you because that's part of the programme is, you know, complete the exam, complete the question. Um, so, again, ChatGPT will sometimes tell you it doesn't know and it can't do it. But more often than not, it will just it'll just lie. Um, I had it summarise some of my books again so I could see how it does that. It's a really good exercise to get it to do something you're familiar with because it is quite reassuring. You can see the richness and how you might use these kinds of tools, but also their limits. Um, so in my books, I tend to structure things because I understand about human minds and that we like sevens and nines and threes and boxes and all those kinds of things. But for ChatGPT, it's just a string of words and it's kind of looking at repeats and emphasis and it's it's kind of summarising on that basis rather than seeing the shape and the meaning that a human would. Um, so, so it is, I, I think, going to be very useful to people in a limited way. It'll get better the more we all train it up, of course. Um, and you can immediately see when you use it why there is huge consternation about what that might mean for jobs. But it also does give you some clues about the kinds of capacities what we're absolutely going to need as humans because these things do make stuff up. I mean, I was asking them to give me references and they were just making up journals, you know, <laughs> making up article titles. Um, but there was enough of a grain of truth in there that I could find what they meant um, because I'm a human and I can kind of be critical. So all of that great training that we've had in the humanities about looking at two different fabulous professors' books and being able to critique them, um, it may look like truth um, and you need... The level of sophistication that humans have to to figure out whether it is truth or not. I uh, read uh, an article when um, Chat and GPT first came out about a lecturer who had set as an assignment for her students. She got the Chat GPT to write an essay, and then she got the students to mark it. And I thought that was really clever yes. because it, it it's about recognizing both the, the the shortcomings as well as the kind of the skill of, of what what it's doing. Absolutely. Um, do you reckon if you went to church and somebody had written a sermon completely through chat GPT, would you notice? I'm not sure. And again, this is going on a lot. Um, it's all over, you know, Anglican Twitter in the UK, everybody fessing yeah. up to sort of writing half their sermon with chat GPT. And you know, partly it's an exercise and partly I'm sure because people are quite busy. It's a really interesting question about authority, isn't it? They mm -hmm. had a problem in America because um, the AI was writing Talmud and they were kind of like, well, if this is based on a load of rabbis, is it kind of authoritative because it's citing rabbis or is this 
construction by an AI devoid of any authority at all. And I think we have that problem now. If if the AI has written your marriage service, you know, does that affect, you know, the sacrament of it? You know, what, what does that mean? And I think this is a very new space for people um, because it gets to the heart of what do words mean and who is the who is creating words in any context? I mean, when you say the liturgy, those words have been written down for you by someone else anyway. Um, and we, we've sort of assumed that they're fine because they're authoritative um, in a way that we're now worrying that ChatGPT isn't authoritative. So a prayer by ChatGPT does, does that, what does that mean? Um, and again, it's a really live and good question because we all have to try and get in touch with what we think authority is, who do we believe and why, can these things be useful? Um, and I think that's what's happening up and down the country at the moment and, and globally where people are using ChatGPT and then having a bit of a worry about, well, that's not really me in the same way that we can use AI to do music and to do pictures. Um, of course, sometimes those things are very beautiful and, uh, and kind of work on many levels. Um, but, but we tend to wander around art galleries and read literature because we have the ghosts of the creators in the room with us mm. in a way it's hard to have with ChatGPT because it's the ghosts of millions of creators and bits of creators all around the web. Um, and therefore a lot of creators who were never on the web and are missed out. And I always, a sermon on a good day, I'm not claiming that this is on every sermon, but on a good day, it feels as though the spirit is speaking to the church. Um, and when you get it right, you're kind of, you're, you're, you are the mouthpiece of the spirit speaking to the church. And it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Could the spirit speak through chat GPT? I'm quite intrigued by how we think about aliens in this regard. So if an alien pitched up to one of your sermons, um, was sat there in the nave of St Paul's looking all kind of green and weird, what's our response to that? Do we say, well, clearly God made the aliens as well because, you know, God made everything? Um, it may be that the alien was made by another alien <laughs> in some way we don't particularly understand and therefore is alien made, not God made. You know, it starts getting to these really, really interesting questions for all of us about what do we think we're up to as a species? You know, how are we relating to other kinds of species and other kinds of non-species like rocks in the natural world? Um, and, and what does that mean for how we should be relating to other parties, whether we understand how they were made and where they've come from or not? Um, and I think it is such an interesting question because there has been an absolute assumption in our thinking that if you're manufactured, you know, there's, there's a categorical difference between something that is essentially organic and made by God and something which isn't and has been made by man. Um, that as soon as you factor in other kinds of thing that we haven't yet met, uh, that could be made by some other circumstance, then it starts throwing all of those binaries into the air. Um, and unless God sent a note and said, this is my beloved son, what, we would have to puzzle that out. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, I think given that, you know, the increases in our understanding of the universe and the galaxies and the whole shebang it's not entirely unlikely that there may be some other kinds of forms of life either currently or having existed in the past and we may need to try and understand these kinds of existential matters about is our species at this moment on earth unique special precious 
um, and does that matter? And of course, to me as a Christian, it matters very much indeed, which is why I've written this book, because I think we need to have a stop and a think about it, um, because this may be our moment. It may be a moment in the universe's time and history that is incredibly precious and special, and we need to not squander that moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think that's why I have really enjoyed um, thinking it through with you and reading your book. Um, that kind of sense that, in a way, this this causes us to ask the questions I want to ask. Who am I? What does it mean for me to be human? How do I relate to God? Where's the space of spirit, the, the Holy Spirit in, in the way in which I engage with life? Um, and on and on and on. But it, it's almost as though AI kind of draws us back constantly to the big, big questions mm. that that we need to be asking anyway. And it feels, you know, if, if you want to look at this kind of in a, a more optimistic view than often is, is it's portrayed, this is the big push for us to begin as Christians to ask the really significant questions. I mean, yeah. even if we can't give all the answers, but asking the questions yeah. seems to me to be really important. Yeah, and I think the thing that really struck me about this enterprise was that my conclusion was that in order to believe in humans, you have to believe in God. And that's a habit we've lost. Um, I mean, the, the faith communities are all busy doing that, but in terms of our secular lives and the environments that most of this AI is operating in, that's not a worldview that has huge traction. Um, but if you want to argue that there is anything at all special about humans when the chips are down and you end up having to talk about things like soul that we haven't been talking about at all for years, you realise that's it. That's our particularity that we're made by God in, in God's image. And actually that's really important and then when you start thinking oh crikey how on earth do we tackle soul in a public policy context and you think well you know there are several religious traditions particularly christianity where cure of souls has been our day job for a couple of thousand years so why are we not engaging with all those people who understand about human souls and understand about human flourishing understand about waywardness and the kind of tight loose of what rules do you you apply and and how do you kind of constantly renegotiate these things in every generation um, what kinds of freedoms are appropriate what kinds of ways should we all behave towards each other in love all those kinds of difficult questions the religions don't of course ever get that right but they try consistently that's that's what they do every day is they have that battle um, in a way that no other institutions really do so i have a, a massive excitement about what it could mean if all those people who cure souls on a day-to-day -day basis get stuck into this debate to try and figure out not only how do we cure our souls better but what might we do to cure something that might be kind of soul-ish in the thing that we are making in our own image um, and how do we try and get that uh, at least as right as we can um, given that this whole thing is an act of extraordinary hubris kind of no exit strategy it does, it does rather behove us to try and do the best we can um, even if we maybe shouldn't have started from here <laughs> um, and I'd just like to end by asking you what in, in this whole sphere what makes you most hopeful when you're thinking about the future and AI I'm really hopeful because I do think the church has got the answers and I know mm -hmm. that sounds a bit trite because we're on a, a you know St Paul's podcast but that, that's why I'm on this podcast because I, I really do believe that when I looked into this because I was having my bleak moment on the beach I was thinking well crikey are, are we special and precious and who's an expert in that and how would we get this right um, it is all the philosophers and the theologians that actually know how to help. Um, and, and we've been, you know, sidelined in, in, in all kinds of areas of, of life. 
um, for many generations now, really. Um, but it feels like this could be a moment where we, we could be of, of real existential help at a moment of, of crisis where people are writing public letters saying, you know, I'm an insider, I'm the godfather stroke grandfather stroke father of AI, and I'm saying stop. <laughs> which is not very confidence inspiring given that we really don't know what's behind those closed doors um and they seem to run out of ideas uh, and i think that's because they've run out of a concept of design they, they took all the easy bits bunged it in and now they're thinking oh master race psychopaths that's not going to end well well we're expert on what you do about that because that has been our, our life's challenge as people who believe in souls and believe they were made in the image of God and need to try and keep striving to get this right, um, we can help with that. Um, so that makes me very excited. It's been fabulous talking to you today, Eve. Thank you so much. Thank you.